0: Please be seated. Let's pray together. God, you promised to teach through your word. Do that now. Father, show us through your word the great love that you have for your children, for us. Jesus, show us through your word how much you love your brothers and sisters. And plead our behalf on our behalf before the Father. That we would see again you and your Father's great love for us. Holy Spirit, come, open our hearts and our minds to your great love for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your name we pray, amen. Um, I, it's great, great pleasure of mine to be back with you guys again. Uh, I, I really can't express how much of an encouragement it has been to me to uh, To come and open God's Word with you last week and preparing for this week, and um, I I have been blessed through it. So thank you, um, session camper. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. We will be looking at First Timothy chapter one. Uh, if you don't have a a Bible, there's a pew Bible. Grab that uh, and turn to First Timothy. We cannot do this without you having a Bible in front of you and looking at the Word with me. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, it's uh, New Testament towards the back. You know, if you get to Second Timothy, that's after First Timothy. Um, if you get to Revelation, you went too far. If you're in Hebrews, you didn't go far enough. Um, flip around, you'll find it. First Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking specifically at 12 and 12 through 17, but... Um, and last week I preached out of Ezekiel thirty-four, and I chose that passage in this passage because you guys are a congregation that's looking for a pastor, and so what I wanted to do was to look at some passages that talks about a pastoral work, about what who that man might be that you're looking for, what you should be looking for in a pastor. And last week we, we looked at how how uh, Jesus. Um, gives us shepherds, pastors, elders, ruling elders, teaching elders, He gives us shepherds the ability to shepherd the sheep um, because we're going to fail and uh, without without Him being the good shepherd, without Him being the one who cares for His flock, we couldn't possibly do this work. We couldn't feed you with His word unless He first is the one that's doing that. Uh, And then, This week we'll be looking at a little different take on on who this pastor might be that you're looking for. You know, in in 1 Timothy, if if you thought at all about um, who pastors are, elders, uh, ruling elders, teaching elders, if you thought all about that, you're probably familiar with 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, it says, uh, qualifications for overseers, and it starts the this the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be so on so on. you know and, and so it 's a description of who uh, the man of God that 's called to the office of elder, be it teaching elder or ruling elder um, what what the qualifications are what that man 's life, his character will look like um, and in some ways that 's a that would be a harder sermon to preach. Um, and and the reason why I didn't I didn't go right to chapter three is because chapter three is the imperative. It's the what you're supposed to do. And, and specifically here, it's what Timothy was supposed to do. Paul has charged Timothy with caring for a church, and he says, Here's how you're supposed to care for a church. You're supposed to look, for, you're supposed to find, ordain elders. These elders are going to have these qualifications. And so that's, that's the imperative. That's what you as a church are supposed to do when looking for um, an, an elder. But what it misses is the indicative. And if you're not familiar with Paul's um, letters, there is always this indicative imperative structure. Paul always starts with the indicative. And the indicative, and the easy way to remember this is it indicates, the indicative is who you are. It's who you are in Christ. The indicative is who you are as a Christian. And then the imperative is what you're supposed to do because of who you are. And so chapter three, it's the imperative. It's, it's, uh, it's what you're supposed to do as a Christian who's looking for an elder. And if you're a member of this congregation, you're gonna vote on, uh, on your elders. Your ruling elders, your, if you call a pastor, associate pastor, senior, lead pastor, you're going to vote. And so this, this is the, the instructions in, ver, in chapter 3 are how you're supposed to think about that, the imperative, what you're supposed to do. And we can't talk about that without first looking at who we are, without first looking at who we are, the indicative of who we are as um, Christians and how then we can you know, make decisions like that, how we can live. And so, uh, that's what we'll be doing this morning. Uh, We'll actually be looking at, uh, we're going to race through chapter 1, 1 through 11, and then we'll talk a little bit more at length about verses 12 through 17. Um, In the first service, I was a little nervous about uh, time because, you know, it's Sunday school, and I mean, there's a lot that I want to talk about, and I was like rushing, and it's great, like, you don't have to, I mean, there's no, no football at one, I mean, I've got you until I say amen, right? <laughs> uh, no, I, um, in preaching, the great thing about preaching a sermon a second time is you, you know what to, what to cut, and I cut some things, and actually I thought of something to add, but, <laughs> anyway, hopefully we won't be here much past two or three. Kidding, of course. I uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who he he made us do this really hokey exercise at the beginning of just about every class, and and uh, he made us recite all together. We had to say together. We had to say, um, start with the Bible, not with the commentary, uh, which is which is a wonderful idea. It's a great premise. It's a premise that you need to start with. I mean, if you're going to be looking and trying to understand God's Word, don't look first at what other men have said about what God's word said. First, look at, look at the Bible. Read the Scripture. The, Jesus promises to teach through it. The Holy Spirit promises to teach through it. It's the only book where you have that promise. So start with the Bible, not with the commentary. Uh, and then the second thing that he would have us do was say, context is king. So, it, and I, mean, I felt hokey doing everything, but, you know, and you, you kind of, if you ever had a pastor make you recite something in a little sermon, you're like, eh, start with the Bible, not with commentary, context is king. But the context really is, it's incredibly important when you look at God's word, and, and, it's, and it's particularly difficult when you look at Paul's writings, because Paul is so thick and rich with doctrine and He's so. I mean, it is it is heady stuff, and so it's it's perfectly appropriate to look at a verse and it's like, what does this verse mean? How do I dive in? How do I make sense of this verse? But if we miss the larger context of who it is, who who is this man that was writing to God's people, and and who were the people that he was writing to, and what is the larger context of this passage? Uh, then we miss the bigger picture of what God is trying to show us, um, and we need to do both. We need to look closely at, at one verse, even one word, but we also have to see the broader context of of what is happening here. And with that in mind, uh, I want to look at these first eleven verses before we dive into, um, you know, what I what I really want to talk about uh, in the broader context. Paul is. Um, just been released from prison in Rome. Um, he's going to be in prison soon again, uh, and then shortly after that, he'll be uh, martyred. Uh, and this is the, so. This is the end of his ministry. And he's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he's writing to him saying, um, "You know, you are a pastor. You're a young pastor, and, and this is how you uh, should lead the church. This is what you should do. Uh, and and so that's the that's the broader context." And so let's let's dive in. Verse one, chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. It's easy to just read that over. It's the introduction. You know, I mean, they write like the same thing every time, right? I mean, not exactly, but let's let's not miss what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is that I'm apostle of Christ of the Messiah of Christ Jesus, by command of God. God's the one who's appointed me apostle. This isn't my own authority. It's coming from God. And then he says, our Savior, God our Savior, God's the one who saves us, rescues us, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And he didn't say, he didn't say, uh, God our hope. God's our hope, of course, but he makes a point of saying, Christ Jesus our hope. Because our hope, our hope is in Jesus, the man, the, the man God, Christ Jesus, our hope, the man who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserved so that we could have life. That's our hope. It goes on verse 2, To Timothy, my true child in faith. Here we have a picture of uh, Paul's love for Timothy. Um, he, he, he considers him a child, a child in faith. This is fatherly advice. And he goes on, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, it's easy just to read that and say, yes, that's nice, because we heard it again and again and again. Grace, mercy, and peace. And what is grace? What is mercy? What is the grace that we have received from God? What is this mercy that he has given us? Why do we need mercy? And then Peace. It's not just the end of war. It's not just the cessation of hostilities. It's all the blessings of the kingdom of God as yours as a child, an heir, an heir of the promises. And so don't rush past these words. Consider what they say. It goes on, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So the charge, the charge is, remember, the context. This is Paul telling Timothy how to lead the church. Don't let people tr- teach doctrine that's uh, any, any different doctrine. Don't let them teach something different. And he talks more about that, and we'll see that in a second. And so when he goes on to talk more about charge. He talks about what not to do. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Rich stuff. I'm not going to dive into that. But I wanted to get to verse 5. The aim of our charge, the purpose of what we're supposed to do as elders, as pastors, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. And that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, again, there's lots to talk about there, but that is what Paul is calling elders, pastors, to. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then next we see that he goes on to talk about how people have missed this. They, they've, they don't understand what it means and certain persons, by swerving in verse six, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make or about which they make com- confident assertions. All right, so these teachers of the law, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't get it. They don't understand. And, and the next four verse three verses help us understand what they're not getting, what they're not getting. He says. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And if you've read any of Paul's stuff, you know he's always saying stuff like this. He's always saying about the law, it's good, and why it's good. And, he, and this is, again, another kind of common phrase if you're familiar with the epistles of Paul. But he's saying this because they're talking about teachers of the law who aren't getting it. He says, we know the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. And then he goes on to describe why we need the law, what the use of the law is. So look with me at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And, you know, we read, we read uh, you know, a, a few verses like that, and it's easy to think, well, I I don't strike my mother and father. You know, I've, I've never hit my parents. I'm not a murderer. I've never perjured myself in a court of law. You know, I don't, I don't fit into that, and so, you know, I'm, I'm good. But, but look more closely who the law is for. Look, look who Paul says the law is for. It's not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Kids, Guys drawing, sketching. You ever been disobedient to your parents? Yeah, unfortunately, I've got kids, I know. (laughs) Adults, parents, you ever, ever been disobedient? You ever done what you shouldn't have? Unholy, profane, but the ungodly and sinners. You know, he says sexually immoral. Remember what Jesus said about those who look at a woman lustfully, they've committed adultery in their heart. Enslavers, liars. Did you tell a lie this week? And then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It mean, is a high standard. A, and so Paul's saying, the law's for you. The law's for me. The law's for everyone. The law is good because, because it shows us our need for a Savior. The law is good because it pushes us to the cross because we know that we can't match up to it. And then the law is good because it shows us how to live. That's the indicative imperative. The imperative is how do we live? The law is how do we live now that we know who we are, now that we know who we are in Christ? Verse 11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I mean, it's a great Paul kind of sentence and you're like, yeah, yeah, but Again, it's hard to, you know, you really have to take a look at here because what, what we have is one of Paul's long, run-on sentences, um, verse 8 through 11. And that 9 and 10 section, who he describes who the law is for, that's a parenthetical kind of statement. And so we're not going to take it out, but let's read verse 8 with verse 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, verse 11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, and so I remember, he's talking about teachers who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they weren't getting it right. And he says, "This is how you get it right. The law is good. You have to teach the law, and so how do you get it right? You teach the law in accordance with the glorious gospel. You teach the law. You teach the law in accordance with the grace that you have received through Christ." You teach the law with the beauty of Jesus. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His ter- eternal reign, His intercession on our behalf. You teach the law in light of all of these things, in light of the gospel. Think about it like this. You know the Ten Commandments. You've heard them before. If you're not a Christian, you've heard the Ten Commandments. If and Parenthetically speaking, if you're not a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm honored that you would... Be here. I'm honored that you would consider this as part of your spiritual journey. And, and even though um, we're talking about who our pastors be, the world is, is full of examples of how pastors have messed things up. And so seeing what the Bible really has to say about who the leaders of the church could be could be very helpful in your faith journey. And so I hope that's true. And so, but, we're, you know, we're looking at, we're looking, I was mentioning the Ten Commandments. And, and so you know the Ten Commandments starts out with um, have no other gods before me, God says. Um, but do you know the verse prior to that? Uh, do you know Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery. I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who saved you. Who saved you from the death that you are living in. I am the Lord who God who loves you, who's called you my own. And I'm rescuing, I'm saving you from your sin. I'm saving you from your slavery. And you don't know how to live. You don't know how to live because you've been living as a slave for too long. You don't know how to live because you're used to the slavery that you lived in. You're used to the sins. Of this world, You're used to living like that. So you don't know how to live. And so let me show you how to live. Let me show you how to live in light of God's grace. Let me show you how to live in light of my love for you. This is what it looks like to live in light of my love for you. Have no other gods before me. And so that's teaching the law in light of the Gospel. That's teaching the law. That's what Paul is saying that elders, that pastors are called to do is to teach the law in light of the gospel. So now we get into our passage for this morning, and you're thinking, that was just the introduction? How long are we going to be here? Like I said, 2 o'clock. Have you ever tried to change... Sport teams, like change who you, who you root for, who, who, you, uh, who you cheer for on a sports team. Um, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I grew up in Virginia, but I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And, and uh, yeah, I know, I mean, there's some Redskin fan in here now that's not going to listen to me anymore. Um, <laughs> but I, and the reason I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan growing up in Virginia is that back when I was a kid, and the, uh, the Redskins won a couple of Super Bowls, And everybody in Virginia jumped on the Redskins bandwagon, including my parents, who could care less about professional sports. I mean, my dad watched, um, you know, uh, triathlon stuff. I mean, he didn't know anything about football, but all of a sudden, you know, it's like, yeah, Hogs and, you know, go Redskins. And I was just, I was appalled at the hypocrisy of it all (laughs) at the very mature age of 10 or something. I was like. I was appalled at the hypocrisy, so I decided to spite everyone in Virginia and become a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> and this was right at the end of uh, the uh, Roger Staubach era, and so, you know, I was just kind of a nominal fan, you know, I, I did, I was, I was uh, excited about Danny White, the last great punter kicker, I mean, punter quarterback, um, anybody know what I'm talking about? No? All right, um, so, but I was just kind of a nominal fan. And the, but then in college, when the, red, the Cowboys won three Super Bowls in four years, that was a good time to be a Cowboys fan in Virginia. I mean, that was a lot of fun, um, you know, just sticking it to all you Redskin faithful. But really, since 1995, it has not been that great for us Cowboy fans. I mean, it's it's I mean it's been depressing at times. And uh, I there there was a game a few years ago. Last game of the season, if we win the game, we make the playoffs. Uh, it was against the Eagles, hated rival. Um, and, and we just got slaughtered. I mean, Romo was terrible. Uh, and, and it was like 35-3. to 3. I was just like, that's it, I'm done, I quit. I cannot do this again. And, uh, and you know, then I was out in Seattle and I thought, all right, I'll switch, I'll be a Seahawks fan. <laughs> right, I mean, if you know anything about professional football, the Seahawks are terrible. That's, it's hard to, hard to switch over to the Seahawks. And then, so this, and then, you know, all the hype of the new season, and then it's like, okay, I can't, they, the Cowboys win a couple games, I just can't switch teams. I'm stuck, sorry. Uh, What we see with Paul talking about here is, is, it's kind of like that. It's far more significant, of course. Paul, Paul changed his allegiances in significant ways, and and if it, if I can't switch from the Cowboys to Seahawks, like can you imagine going from persecuting, murdering Christians to being the the Christian, the leader of the church, going from a place that where his his life was the law, the law was. His life was being a Jew. And he, he committed everything to that. And then, he was changed. The only way that could happen is through Jesus. And his conversion is significant, and it's, a, it's an amazing story. And, and that's what we see. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, pointing me to his service. Paul's saying, Jesus looked into my life and he, and, and he says that I was faithful. He says that I was worthy of his trust. And, and, and there is judgment. And judgment from Jesus, that's what Paul saying. There's judgment. And Paul said, and Paul says, He looked at me and said, He, he proves me faithful. So, I mean, is, does that mean that Paul is saying he was good enough? Let's keep, keep looking. Verse 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He was, he was. He murdered Christians. And he says, But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy. Even though I was a murderer, I had received mercy. mercy. Anything, of course. I mean, that's can't hang around the church for very long without hearing the message of the gospel, which is grace and mercy for, from Jesus, no matter what we've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've struggled with, no matter what you did when you were a teenager, no matter what happened when you were in your 20s, no matter the mistakes that you made in your 30s, and so on. No matter what you are received you rec- by Christ, you receive mercy. And that's absolutely true. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Ignorant. He didn't know. He didn't know Jesus. He hadn't met Jesus. He hadn't experienced that mercy. And so his, 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 uh, his blasphemy, his persecution, his insolent uh, his murder, was because he didn't know Jesus. When you know Jesus, things change in the way that you live. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. Things change in the way that you live. So verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's a relatively well known um, pastor in our denomination, Scotty Smith, in uh, covenant, Christ Community Church in um, Nashville. Is that right? Did I get that right? Christ Community? And uh, so, Scotty Smith, he, uh, he's got a great devotional. It's like uh, everyday um, gospel kind of thing. It's like you read the gospel every day. It's one of the best daily devotionals I've seen. I recommend it. Anyway. Um, He he also is a tweeter. Um, He tweets. You call somebody a tweeter? No. I haven't been hanging around college kids much lately. So, Um, so, and and he and he of course he has his tweets linked to Facebook and he's got like five thousand Facebook friends and I'm one of them. Um, (laughs) One of five thousand. I feel very special. Anyway. A tweet, a post that he had a week or so ago. It said, um, saying that God's grace is sufficient to cover my sin is like saying that the Pacific Ocean is sufficient for one clam. I thought it was a great picture. It was a great picture of, you know, God's grace is sufficient. It's, I mean, it is the Pacific Ocean for one clam. And then, and then I think about Paul, and I think Paul, who was a murderer, who, um, who you know, went after Christians and killed them, and it's like, if, if God's grace is sufficient for Paul, who did so much, I'm not a murderer, I, mean, I, never, I, I haven't done these things that, that Paul is talking about. If God's grace is sufficient for Paul, how much more is sufficient is it for me? How much more sufficient is God's grace for you? The Pacific Ocean in one clam. I mean, it is, it is, it's even more than that. And then we get to uh, verse 15, and, and this is, if you, if you were paying attention, keeping score, you saw that the, the title for the sermon is uh, Foremost of Sinners, and that's where this comes from. So verse 15, and, and Paul says... The saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And uh, <laughs> this is another Facebook kind of analogy it's, do you have any of those friends on Facebook? And if you're not on Facebook, I mean, you're probably like either 70 or older and or maybe like one or th- of other three people in here. And there's probably somebody else in here who's like, I'm not on Facebook and I'm gonna tell you why I'm not on Facebook. And, you're welcome to do that afterwards. But anyway, if you are on Facebook, uh, do you have any of those friends who, who post a status and then they like their own status? <laughs> <laughs> People claiming to do that. You know, it's like, here's, here's what I say. That was good. <laughs> like. And and I've got a friend who does that and, and I tease him about it all the time. And he's like, Why wouldn't I like what I have to say? You know? <laughs> Paul Paul kind of does the same thing right here. You know, he says, uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I mean, is the rest of the stuff, you know, just kind of take it or leave it? You know, Peter tells us later that Paul, you know, had in mind that he's writing scripture. And so is, you know, is is the other stuff not as good as this, this one, the other times where he says, he says it several times, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I read at the beginning of three, the saying is trustworthy. But, of course, what he's doing, he's highlighting. No, he's saying, pay attention. And, and so, let's pay attention. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And and again, yeah, I mean, you've been in church before. Yeah. Jesus, sinners. I've I've heard this before. You know, good, good. And then he says, of who I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who I am the foremost. And you're like, of course. I mean, he was the foremost of sinners. he, He murdered Christians. Yeah. And of course, that, that's obviously, he fits into that category. Read, Remember 9 and nine 10, nine that, that list of the ungodly? Of course, he's the foremost of sinners. Yeah, you did all those things. Um, but, but look at the verb tense. Look at the verb tense. And, and you're like, okay, I'm, are you my seventh grade grammar teacher? But look at the verb tense. He says, of who I am. The foremost. Now, in, in, the, verse, in the verses preceding, we'll look back at 1st Thing. It says, I was a blasphemer, past tense. Verse 14, and the grace of the Lord overflowed, not overflows, so overflowed, past tense. Verse 16, I received, not I receive, or I am receiving. It says, I received. But then in 15, it's presence tense of who I am the foremost. So what do we do with that? How do we make sense of Paul saying, "I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners." And he says stuff like this in a couple other places. Um, he says, "I'm the uh, least of the apostles. Um, I am the least of the sa- of the saints." And here he says, "I am. I am the foremost of sinners." What's interesting about this this um, in the construction of the Greek it's it is there's there's a couple ways to say I am. Um, and one way to say it is "ego a me," uh, and and that is the language that Jesus used when he describes who he is. And, the, and that idea, when Jesus says "I am," you know, and that's that's the language of Yahweh at the burning bush with Moses. "I am," and then we, we can't really understand that. And so um, what? So uh, we get throughout John, we have Jesus saying. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way and the truth, truth and the life. And so he's explaining it. And so Paul uses that same construction and says, I am foremost of sinners. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an interesting correlation. Um, I, I don't think we can just dismiss the fact that Paul changes verb tense here. Uh, and you know, I think we, we want to dismiss it. Some part of us wants to dismiss it because we want to say, "You know, I came to Christ, I stopped doing this, I stopped doing that. You know what I'm, I'm living a good life." And, and Paul is talking about, "I used to be, but I'm OK now. A lot of times in, in the Christian circles in, in the church, we can do brokenness after the fact. I used to be broken. But I'm, I'm okay now. I'm better now. And so we want to ignore the fact that Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, because we want to say, I'm all good now. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I was, I've accepted Christ. The Spirit lives in me. I'm living a holy and righteous life. The other side of us, and, and I honestly relate to this, this other side more, Says where you want to say... Um, that's right. I am the foremost of sinners because I can just keep on sinning. I can just keep on doing whatever I want, you know, because the mercy of God overflows for me, and it doesn't matter what I do. When we listen to those two sides of the trying to figure out why Paul uses the present tense here, and it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. You can't really match that up with who God is. So there has to be something different going on. There has to be a different view of sin than often we think about it when Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. You know, Paul, this is 30 years after his conversion, and there were almost 15 years before he began his ministry. So there's significant growth in the Lord uh, for Paul before he gets to the point where he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Significant growth and, and lots of suffering for Christ. Um, and, and he gets to this point where he says, I am the foremost of sinners. And, it, and there's other places where he says, imitate me um, in holiness, in righteousness. There's other, and another place where he says, I have lived amongst you with a clear conscience. Everything that I've done... I." He lives with that clear conscience. There's no doubt about how he lived. And so we know that he's not saying, I keep on sinning like I, like I used to. I, I'm doing the same things when I was a blasphemer, when I was a murderer. We know he's not saying that. And so what is he saying? And, and here's the main point. I'm, I'm going to answer it for you. And if you're a note taker, write this down. If you're not, um, and you've got a pen handy, do it. If you don't have that, don't worry about that either. I'm not a note taker. Um, And, you know, preaching, it's experiential, existential. Just attend with me. If you're asleep, wake up. (laughs) If you're not paying attention, pay attention. Here's, Here's the answer. What Paul is saying is that mature Christians understand the depth of their sin. Mature Christians understand the depth of their sin, not the breadth that a breadth of sin would be all these sins that I am committing. The depth of my sin would be how far my sin has removed me from the heights of Christ's holiness, of God's holiness, the heights of His righteousness. So I understand the depth of my sin. And, and you guys are thinking about, uh, you guys are, are working to find your next pastor. And if he is someone who says, I'm the foremost of sinners, and still has a lot of these same sins that he was struggling with 20 years ago, and he probably isn't the man for you. But if he's a man that understands how much his sin, even today, has removed him from God, this could be a good, this could be a good thing. Think about it like this. Think about covetousness. Um, you know, you come to, you come to faith and you're, you're like, you know what, I just want to buy what I want when I want, no matter how much money I have, credit card. I just like, I want, I want something, I'm going to buy it. Okay, and then I'm convicted. It's like, oh, I can't do that. And so I, I keep on, uh, you know, it's like, oh, no, I'm not even going to pay attention to my credit card bill. I'm just going to buy. Um, but then as you grow in faith, the, the temptation doesn't go away. And remember last week I said the temptation isn't sinful. It's how what you do with the temptation. And so the ten, you know 20 years later, are you still struggling with covetousness? Yes. Yes, you are. Because the temptation isn't going to go away. But what do you do with that? You, you don't act on it, for one. But even more importantly, you understand why it is that you have to fill some empty place in your soul with the next gadget. You know, with the next new toy. Anybody on Uncrate? It's a website. It's like stuff for men or something. I love it. I'm on it every, every day. It's really cool stuff. You know? uh, and it's like I want to fill some void I have, in, but what I recognize is that Jesus is the only one who can fill that void. So that is that's understanding the depth of my sin my sin my covetousness has taken me away from god because i want to fill my need for god with something else so the main point main idea if you don't remember anything else a mature christian is one who understands the depth of his sin the height of god's holiness and then how the glory of Jesus and the cross have made it possible that I do not have to live in my sin any longer. How do you know, how do you know when someone gets it? Like, how are you going to know? A good way is to think about uh, righteousness. Because there's a type of righteousness that absolutely repels you from another, someone else. It makes you want to run away, and it's self-righteousness. And it's someone who points out how they're better. I mean, you you know that person. You you know that in yourself, that temptation. says, like, I've got this figured out. That is a type of righteousness that repels. But what about the type of righteousness that attracts? Have you seen that? Have you seen that type of humility? Uh, A humility that doesn't think of itself less, but instead just doesn't think of itself? Um, One of my professors at seminary, uh he, uh, Jerem Bars and he's a 60, late 60s English gentleman, and um, he's written some few, a few books that uh, are wonderful, and, uh, but he's, he's not like the most well-known speaker in, in Christian circles, and his books don't sell as much as some people. He, some of you may have heard of him. When I first got to seminary at Covenant, uh, I, was, I, you know, I was in class with Jerem, and I was like, this guy is not for real. Nobody is that holy. Like Nobody's that good. Nobody can be that. I mean, he's real. He's, um, he's uh, vulnerable. Uh, and it's like, there's it got to be something he's hiding. That's all there is to it. And so I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really get to know Jerem until I took a class called Pastoral theology, and the main point of that class was to write a paper where uh, you would have to explain if you were going to make a mess of your ministry, how it would happen. Like, what is it that would happen that would make you have to leave the ministry? Like, what? And and to do this well, to really examine what it is, you know, to speculate what could happen, you'd have to take a deep look at who you are. You'd have to really look at your childhood and see how it shaped you to be who you are. Um, and it, it so happened that I had also gotten into uh, counseling at the same time to look at some of the issues of my childhood and who it had shaped me. I mean, I was, I was a ruling elder already in the PCA, and then I went off to seminary at 35, and then I thought, you know, I mean, I'm, I've grown, and of course I want to grow some more, and I'm looking forward to further growth. Um, but God just made it clear that he was not done with me. And this, that particular semester, it was like the perfect storm of God making sure that I understood my acceptance in Jesus. And I was also taking another class, Marriage and Family, where I had to do a genealogy, which is this chart that examines all the brokenness of your family as far back into generations as you can find, how the, your grandparents shaped your parents, etc. And so two classes, and then counseling, and I was writing this paper for Jerem, and to do this well, I mean, you just had to lay it all out there, and so I would literally, and it wasn't really an academic kind of paper, so we were free to write however we like, and so I would literally type, I do not want to write this, and then I would say some part of my story that was too painful to really talk about, and then... Uh, and then I, I did that several times. I don't want to write this. And I would write it. And so I was specifically vulnerable with Jerem about my life, my struggles, my past. I, I, I laid it out there for him, like I was doing with counseling. And, and so um, at, at the beginning of the next semester, I agreed to give a testimony in chapel, in our chapel service, about what God was showing me, um, about what I was learning about myself. And so I... I got up there, and I was generally vulnerable in this seven to ten minute um, chapel message about uh, my struggles and what I was learning and how I have seeing God meet me in those struggles. I was generally vulnerable, like I've been with you guys this morning. And um, after the service, a bunch of people came up, you know, a bunch, half dozen people came up to thank me for being vulnerable, to thank me for sharing my heart, and, and it was great. It was kind, and, you know, I thanked them and for those encouragement. And, but then, as I was doing this, I saw Jerem walk towards me, and um, I looked into his eyes, and, and Jerem's he's like 6'2", he's bigger than I am, so I, I, he's walking towards me, and um, he's got tears in his eyes, and all of a sudden, I'm looking at someone whom I was specifically vulnerable with who knew everything about me, who knew me. And and as soon as I looked into his eyes, I just started weeping. And everybody else that was in that service, a hundred some people, they just disappeared. It didn't matter. I was just weeping. And Jerem came up, and and he put his arms around me. And I I just put my head on his shoulder like this, and Jerem holds me, and I'm weeping. And the reason... That Jerem could do this is because he understands that he is the foremost of sinners. A holy, righteous man who attracts people to him, who attracts sinners to him. And I found the acceptance of Christ in Jerem. I found God. God was gracious enough, He he condescended to give me a real live human example of my acceptance in Christ. And I got that from a man who, was, who is, the, is the most holy man that I knew. And I'm blessed to still keep in touch with him today and, and be encouraged by him and to see his continuing grace and holiness, the kind of holiness that attracts, the kind of holiness because he knows the depth of his sin. The height and glory of God's holiness and the beauty of the cross. Verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason: that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says it right here. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And it's about those who will come to believe in Jesus because of how he has displayed his mercy and his grace through me. And for that reason, truly, verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.